Hi, and welcome back to To Think Minimum, the podcast of the Technology Policy Institute. Today is Tuesday, January 16th, 2024. I'm Scott Walston, president of TPI. Today, we're going to be talking antitrust. Specifically, we'll focus on the Robinson-Patman Act. Passed in 1936, it prohibited price discrimination with a stated intent to prevent unfair competition and protect small retailers. For a long time, the act was somewhat overshadowed as antitrust emphasized market efficiency and consumer welfare. However, the Federal Trade Commission has now said we'll bring enforcement actions under Robinson-Patman, making it important to understand the act and its effects. Today, we're talking with Professor Marius Schwartz, who wrote what remains the best economic analysis of the Robinson-Patman Act while he was at the Department of Justice in the 1980s. It was published in the 1986 Antitrust Bulletin. We'll put a link to the paper in the podcast description. Dr. Marius Schwartz is Professor of Economics at Georgetown University, where he's taught since 1983. His research and teaching interests include industrial organization, competition, and regulation. Professor Schwartz has hardly been hiding out in the ivory tower during that time, though. He served as senior economist in the President's Council of Economic Advisors, where, by the way, is where I met him when I was a staff economist and working with Marius. He was also economics director of enforcement and acting deputy assistant attorney general for economics in the Department of Justice Antitrust Division and chief economist at the FCC. Marius, thanks for being here. Thank you, Scott. Well, thanks for the kind words. I'm not sure that I can claim that my article is the best on Robinson Patman, but I'll defer to you. So uh, <laughs> thank you. We'll say it is. So, okay, so let's start at a very high level. Just tell us what Robinson Patman does and what the law intended to achieve. And we can discuss in more detail later. Sure. So, as you mentioned, it was passed in 1936, and it was an amendment to Section 2 of the Clayton Act. Of 1914. The Clayton Act itself is the main federal antitrust law that defines in some detail transactions and practices that are will be prohibited, quote, where the effect may be substantially to lessen competition. So things like sometimes mergers are prohibitive, some prohibited, sometimes exclusive dealing, tying arrangements, and so on. Robinson Patman was added as an amendment to that. And it condemns price discrimination again, where the effect may be substantial to lessen competition. So it's a, it's a competition-oriented statute in principle. And the impetus was perceptions that large chain stores such as A&P uh, enjoyed unfair advantages when competing against small mom and pop stores in industries such as food and drugs, food and drug retailing. Uh, because the chain stores obtained better prices in other terms from suppliers due to their stronger bargaining power as compared to the mom and pops. And so Robinson Patman sought to prevent such discriminatory concessions to the chains that gave them supposedly unfair advantages. So tell us a little, why would better, more bargaining power be considered anti-competitive? I think the idea is that if uh, discounts are based just on bargaining power, as opposed to reflecting efficiencies in, in the uh, range between the two parties, that's, that's essentially a transfer. So it's a loss to one party and a gain to the other. And it doesn't increase overall welfare by itself. It's a pure transfer. And resources are devoted to try to make that transfer or prevent it, the phenomenon is rent-seeking, are themselves wasteful. So there is an argument to be made that discounts obtained solely due to bargaining power are not themselves efficient. And actually, since maybe since we're on that path now, maybe explain just quickly why, you know, reasons why price discrimination can be pro-competitive as well. So price discrimination, uh, but perhaps the main reason why it could be good is if it 
expands output or uh, by essentially letting suppliers offer discounts and thereby serve consumer groups, markets that otherwise would remain unserved if you required a uniform price. That's I think that's perhaps the main scenario where it's efficient. Okay, so we've got reasons why, reasons, explanations, justifications for the law, reasons why price discrimination might be good. But then you decided to write this paper in the late 70s and, and, and early 80s. What made you do that then? And then talk a little bit about why it matters today. I mentioned the FTC bringing enforcement actions, but it's bigger than that. It's broader than that, why we should care. Right. So first of all, not the late 70s. I'm not quite that old, Scott, but <laughs> I'll forgive you for that transgression. It was, it was in the early 80s. And I was a part-time economist at the antitrust division at the time, uh, the Department of Justice's antitrust division. I just started at Georgetown and working part-time at DOJ uh, as a visiting academic. And Bill, Assistant Attorney General Bill Baxter at the time, uh, strongly criticized the effects of Robinson Patman. Here I have to give a shout out to Bill Baxter, who's absolutely a terrific academic and division chief, enormous professional integrity. He's he's the man who uh, dropped the IBM case and also launched the breakup of AT&T. So <laughs> important man and always to those principles. In any case, Bill Baxter was strongly criticizing the effects of Robinson Patman. And he was asked for evidence, to which he replied, oh, it's all over the place. And when he was pushed, he in turn asked Larry White, who was the head of the Economic Policy Office, the office where I worked at the time. And Larry said, oh, it's everywhere. And then when pushed, he said, hmm, he asked me. <laughs> so that the question <laughs> fell into my lap. And I can <laughs> talk later if there's time about how I went about it. But the quick answer is that- there So the buck stopped with you. The buck stopped with me. Now, turning to your, your question, well, why should we care about it today? That, which is an excellent question. After all, this paper is in, from 1986. So while well, it's good to dredge up old memories, <laughs> you know, that's not <laughs> why your readers may be interested, your listeners. Uh, and so the um, thing, what, one reason that you mentioned, the immediate reason, is that the, the there's talk of increased FTC enforcement of the act. I've not followed that and I'm not going to comment on it. And I don't think that's the main reason why we should be interested. The main reason is that the concept of non-discrimination uh, features heavily in several ongoing and important antitrust and regulatory initiatives. And I'll talk about those in a sec. In my article, you can think of it as an object lesson in how hard it is to efficiently regulate price discrimination or really any kind of discriminatory treatment when parties, such as buyers, uh, are not similarly situated. Uh, for example, the cost of serving them may be different, or they may be demanding different things from the supplier. So in cases like that, uh, operationalizing, operationalizing the concept of non-discrimination is actually much harder than, than one might first think. We can talk about a couple of initiatives where that matters if you want. Right. But, but so you're saying... You're not addressing the reasons why they might do this. That they're, you know, that they're they may may legitimately be trying to uh, deal with ways that price discrimination is not uh, is not a good thing, but that objectively trying to put it into practice is problematic. That's exactly right. Is that um, when I approach this issue, I came from a theory bent, you know, price discrimination mm -hmm. pros and cons at the theory level, and I hadn't really appreciated as deep as I now do 
the difficulties of actually implementing a rule, you know, what, what kind of problems you encounter in practice when buyers are not similarly situated, small buyers, big buyers, they demand different things and so on. So the, the practical implementation problems is something that this article really opened my eyes to. Um, so uh, I, you mentioned that it's related to other price discrimination, other discrimination issues today, but I don't think you gave us examples. What right. other things are relevant? Yeah. To? Yeah. So let, let's just take off a couple. One, there were congressional bills, uh, I guess in 2022, mm -hmm. targeting tech platforms, the big tech companies. And in there, the concept of non-discriminatory non access and no self-preferencing no self uh, were central. So, for example, the American Innovation Choice Online Act, which had passed the Judicial Senate Judiciary Committee in January 22, would have barred any conduct that advantages the covered platform's own products or discriminates among similarly situated business users. So you have this concept of non-discrimination. Now, the question would be, well, all right, what is that going to mean in practice? Is it going to be a simple thing to police or is it going to raise a lot of headaches? And similar issues come up in European Union's Digital Markets Act that talks a lot about non-discrimination. Um, another example is the Federal Communications Commission, something I'm sure you're familiar with. The Federal Communications Commission's FCC's Title II regulation of broadband providers. There's a whole controversy over net neutrality. Um, and if I can say a word about that, a naive view in the net neutrality debate is that data packets should not be prior prioritized or at least the operator should not have authority to prioritize some data packets over others, should be, quote, neutral, so non-discrimination. Now, you think about it a little more closely, that's naive. Why? Because different applications require different performance attributes from the network. For example, real-time real video require, does not tolerate jitter or latency, whereas if you're doing large file transfers, say a movie overnight, you don't care that much about latency or jitter. So if you require that all data packets be treated, quote, equally, in any meaningful sense, that's not neutrality, right? That's net uniformity. Mm -hmm. So the, the deeper point here is that non-discrimination is a seductive concept. It sounds simple. It sounds attractive. But in practice, when you try to implement it, it really can be quite problematic. And, and I think that the Robinson-Patman Act history uh, gives a, a, a nice case study of that. Okay, so that's a great, great segue into that. So let's talk more about your analysis of the act. You know, what were some of the provisions of Robinson-Patman? What were the allowed defenses? And what did those, what real world outcomes did those lead to? Right. So that's that's a lot of stuff there, but I'll yeah. <laughs> try to do it some justice. <laughs> right. Basically, uh, what's yeah. your entire paper? Right. But that's fine. We, we don't have to do all the whole paper. <laughs> So let's start with the provisions. And there are some sections called the price discrimination clauses, and they prohibit seller from charging different prices to different buyers of goods of, quote, like grade and quality, meaning similar grade and quality, where the effect may be to weaken competition, okay, the standard Clayton Act language. And then if there is a prima facie charge of discrimination, different prices, the burden is put on the seller to justify, to rebut the uh, price discrimination appearance. Uh, and it also buyers are prohibited from knowingly inducing discrimination. So this is about prices, different prices. Then there are two other sets of provisions 
that really attempt to prevent discounts through non-price forms. So one is the brokerage clause that basically says you're not allowed to pay brokerage commissions to a buyer, only to independent third-party brokers uh, on the theory that this brokerage could really just be a phony payment, not reflecting in real service. And then there's also the promotional clauses that say prohibit a seller from granting any allowance to buyer to a buyer for promotional services performed by the buyer or from providing those services directly unless, this is the key part, the allowance or provision is provided to all other buyers on, on quote, proportionately equal terms. We'll come back to that. So the purpose of these last two brokerage clauses and proportionality clauses was to prevent concealed discounts. And they create a lot of mischief, these two clauses. <laughs> well, wait, but before you before we talk about that, that mischief, two questions. I, I guess, so it's not... Um... These are not making anything per se illegal in principle. Right. Um, but you're guilty until proven innocent. Uh, is I mean, for, first, is that the, kind of the way to, to think about it? And second, yes. the, the independent brokerage thing is, is confusing because usually people talk about saving money by cutting out the middleman. And everybody knows the middlemen don't like to be cut out. But why would the government be encouraging middlemen? Yeah, so let's... Your first question was, now I forgot it. Guilty it? until proven innocent. Yes, absolutely. That's right. The burden is on the seller to justify the different prices. Mm -hmm. So you're right. And we'll come back to what some justifications are, the two main ones. And then the brokerage clause, the idea there was, like, if you're a big buyer and you're trying to get a discount just based on your bargaining power, and the law prevents you from getting a lower price, well, you might say, well, it's not really a lower price. It's that I, the broker, am performing the buyer, the big buyer. I'm acting as my own broker. For example, I'm contacting the seller and saving him money because otherwise the seller would have to employ an independent broker uh, to, to find customers. But if in reality, I'm not, I, the big buyer, I'm not performing any of these brokerage functions. I'm just using it as a phony excuse to justify a price concession under the guise of brokerage payments. The law says, we're just not going to allow that. We're not going to allow brokerage payments unless they're made to an independent party, not to the big buyer himself. Is is that clear? It is. So and, and we'll come back to that. They, yeah. So the, the cost of the cost of, of deadweight loss introduced by that, they believe implicitly, outweighs the uh, sorry, the, the, the benefits of, of preventing the kind of behavior you're talking about outweighs any deadweight loss the, the independent uh, um, negotiator brings in. We'll come back to that. I don't think they thought in terms of deadweight loss or city, not explicitly, but we'll come back to that, which is, okay, what does this prohibition, what did this prohibition do? And it mm -hmm. created some perverse effects in the distribution methods. Right. The, uh, now, one point about this these two brokerage clause, promotional clauses. So serious legal scholars have said, look, really, these should not have been separate provisions. They sh their intent should have been subsumed under the price discrimination clauses. Now, you can't give discounts either through prices or any other price, non-price ways without trying to start enumerating things in detail, which creates their own problems. And, and in fact, there's a beautiful quote from somebody, from a, an antitrust expert, Quote, no statute better demonstrates the legislative folly of trying to define sin in detail. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> it's a quote that could be used to a lot of other legislation. Right. <laughs> uh, so, so those are the provisions, and and then the defenses. You know, interestingly, even though the brokerage clauses and the and the proportionality clauses were just designed initially to prevent concealed discounts, they evolved into per se prohibitions de facto. Right. And the only don't ask me why that's a long story. Um, and the defenses available were only in price discrimination cases. So if there's a difference in prices that prima facie is presumed discriminatory, uh, the seller uh, can rebut that in one of two ways. Uh, one is the cost defense, which says, look, these price differences reflect uh, difference in the cost of serving the different buyers. So if I give a discount to buyer A, it's because it's it's cheaper to deal with buyer A, and that cost difference pretty much explains the price difference. That's the cost defense. The, the other one, very different, is meeting competition in good faith. That says, I gave the buyer a discount because I believed in good faith that that same buyer was given, given that a similar offer by my competitor. And so I had to match it. And these very different animals, and we'll come back to the perverse effects that each of them has generated. So, but aren't, aren't those defenses um, both just supply based? So, people putting different values on whatever the good or good or service is is not a justification. So, only only the supply side counts as a defense. That's right. I mean, we know that in fact, efficient pricing, the theory of Ramsey pricing, is that. If you're a regulator trying to maximize overall welfare, you would not just base prices on costs. You'd also base them on willingness to pay, because that's that's a well-known theory. Uh, the the Robinson-Patman context, they focus narrowly on, okay, look, we just want to stop price differences that are due to bargaining power. This I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. Mm -hmm. uh, and so if we see price differences, the only uh, defense you're allowed is, well, it reflects differences in the cost of providing. So it's not really discrimination. It's cost-based price differences. Or, you know, I had to give a, a this price discount because my competitor did. So you're right. There wasn't any issue of value of service or things of that sort. Um, so another question, maybe you don't have an answer for this, and maybe it's like it's a little too clever by half. But if you're meeting somebody else's discount, doesn't that mean you're uh, implying that they broke the law? Well... Maybe not. I mean, not necessarily, right? Because the other person may suppose the other seller is selling only to this buyer. Right? Mm -hmm. Then the other seller is not discriminating because he's not making he's not <laughs> there, there discounts to be had. Yeah. It's just one customer, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so you're right. It's more clever by half, but it is clever. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, with all of that, what happened? So the cost defense, in principle, right? If you could easily go take a look, say, okay, these are the cost differences, fine, you're acquitted. It could have gone a long way towards alleviating the problems. In fact, it is quite difficult in practice to ascertain the different costs of serving different buyers, especially because we don't have some good data, but also some of the costs are not easy to measure. They include some fixed costs, transaction costs, and so on. So it's not easy to measure these costs. And now you have, as an agency in the courts, you have an, a choice. If you take a very lenient approach, say, oh, well, if you just claim cost differences, we'll believe you, then pretty much any cost price differences are going to be acquitted. So we're going to call that the acquit the guilty type two error. 
they chose instead to adopt the opposite approach, which is a very stringent standard for cost justification. And I think at, at one point it was like, unless you can justify at least 90% of the price difference based on cost differences, we're going to strike down the whole discount. Okay. The, the practical effect of this is the cost justification defense end up essentially voided. And so the price differences essentially became synonymous with discrimination. I like to think of sort of two big buckets. Well, I think that's fair. Two or four, depending on how you count. <laughs> Let's go through. One is, did it promote competition? Because after all, you know, the, the language of the Clayton Act is where the effect may be substantially to lessen competition. So there are a couple of ways in which the Robinson Patent actually weakened competition. So one is stabilized collusion among sellers. And the idea here is if sellers are colluding, a big threat to their scheme is if a large buyer comes along and approaches one of the colluding sellers and says, give me a discount and, and I'll sh shift a lot of volume to you. Right? So if you colluding seller can get a lot of volume by giving a discount, that's a strong incentive to cheat on the collusion. Um, if the Robinson Batman Act says, oh, you're, you sellers are not allowed to give discount just based on volume, then that helps the colluders <laughs> collude. As it says, look, I, the colluder tells the buyer, I'd love to give you this. I'm like, I can't. Robinson Patman prevents me. So right. to see this is just not, not an idle concern. Uh, there are a couple of cases where, in fact, colluding manufacturers urged the FTC to stop volume discounts. <laughs> uh, by uh, And, of course, in a different era, a different so year, I think, one case I'm thinking of was in 1963, but early on, 1941, there was a case where under a different antitrust law, uh, prohibitions on volume discounts had been ruled unlawful as, be, as impeding competition. So prohibitions on volume discounts were frowned upon under one law, but under Robinson Patman, they were supported and colluded said, wonderful, FTC, please help us end volume discounts. So that's okay. one example of stabilizing collusion. Um, another example in the same flavor is, is that they encourage what we think of as customer allocation. Remember, there were two defenses. One was cost defense and the other was meeting competition. Right. The meeting competition for a, a time, this may have changed eventually, but for a time it was interpreted to mean that you can only use it to retain old customers but not acquire new ones and to meet but not beat a competitor's price. That sounds like awfully like, all right, I'm. I'm not allowed to offer lower prices in order to attain new customers. You know, I can, if if I'm to stay within Robinson Patman, I can cut price, even if it will always violate Robinson Patman, provided I'm matching another competitor's price and provided that using it to retain my old customers. It sounds a lot like, you know, let's keep the customer allocation as is and uh, as opposed to allowing firms to, uh, give discounts to attract new customers. Right. So that's one. This is something that the other weird thing is remember, you're allowed to meet, but not beat a competitor's price that provided you think that that price is lawful, you believe it's lawful in good faith. Right. That's uh, maybe garbling the language. Mm -hmm. So, meeting, as, as one commentator said, 
meeting lawful prices presupposes profits, not competitors. <laughs> so in other words, how do I know whether the other guy's price is lawful? This is actually something you raised, Scott, earlier on. <laughs> and so clear, that's a problem. In fact, the mischief went further because sellers would sometimes use this language to say, well, gee, I'm going to call up my competitor and say, is it really the case that you offered buyer X a discount? He's asking me for that discount. I want to make sure I'm not violating Robinson Patman. I want to make sure I'm meeting the price in good faith. So what did you, in fact, charge this guy? Now, <laughs> right. in a normal antitrust case, you'd be quite suspicious of competitors calling each other up and saying, what are you charging the other guy? You can imagine that being introduced as evidence in a normal antitrust case. Right. And here they say, well, oh, gee, I'm just trying to meet competition in good faith. Mm -hmm. so, so that was another set of weird effects. Third under competition was that it overprotected competitors, right? So uh, remember, in theory, we're supposed to, Robin's patent itself, because it's lifting the Clayton Act language of prohibiting practices where the effect may be substantially to lessen competition. So we're mm -hmm. in theory interested in protecting competition, not competitors, the old you know, distinction. The way it was enforced, it did overprotect competitors. So here's one example. I'll give you two examples. There's a, a notorious case called Utah Pi. Utah is the state and Pi, P-I-E, from 1967, where the defendants were three national firms and they were competing against a small family-run firm in the Utah. In Utah. That family firm you know, cut prices. The defendants cut prices in response. They were convicted of geographic price discrimination, that they cut prices in Utah and not elsewhere, um, even though they were responding to the price cut by Utah Pie. And in fact, uh, so their Utah Pie, after all this, the dust settled, Utapai still remained the largest firm in that region. Um, this is the kind of case where if you were to try to bring in under the Sherman Act, Section 2 of monopolization or predatory pricing, you'd say no way. You know, they, 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 these three national firms tried to drive out Utapai, and yet Utapai remained the main, had the largest market share there. But Robinson Patman, Somehow the standards seem, oh boy, different prices might injure competition. Let's go after it. So that's just one example. Well, the so other... so just to ask you a little more about that, yeah. the first examples with uh, prices and acquiring new customers, that you know seems easy to imagine. The, you know, this is the the FTC as the colluder's best friend, you know, OPEC would have would have loved it. But in this case with Utah High, don't you think people who who believe in the protecting competitors theory more than protecting consumers would think that that was the outcome they wanted. Utah Pie stayed well, stayed in its market and stayed strong. So why is yeah. that wrong? Yeah, I suppose that's right. If if the state had, well, no, no, here's why. Because, oh. because the, the, so it, yes, if you're coming out and saying, look, my goal is just to protect small firms, then fine. We don't need to waste a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> but that wasn't the stated purpose of Robinson Patman, right? It, it was to eliminate artificial advantages of the big firms, right? Coming from bargaining power over suppliers. This is a very different kettle of fish, right? You've got big firms operating nationally, but they're not biggest in that local area. 
and they're responding to price cuts by the dominant local firm. And yet somehow that's called a violation. So I think I've answered your question, right? It, yeah, it oh, definitely. Absolutely. Now, the, the other set of issues where it overprotects the competitors has to do with forcing firms to use independent brokers or independent middlemen as opposed to vertically integrated, integrating mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, so that's also overprotecting these independent middlemen. And we can, that's actually the next set of examples that I can turn to. Robinson at Patman Act perversely weakened competition in, in important ways. That's mm -hmm. what I just discussed. The other one is that distorted distribution methods. It creates all kinds of inefficiencies in the distribution chain. And one important way is by discouraging buyers from performing functions, middleman functions, that they could perhaps perform more efficiently than relying on independent middlemen. Um, and the reason here is the, the, the buyers, let me just come back, give me one second here. Yeah. So the FTC and the courts considered only whether the buyer that's getting the discount competed at some level of resale with a buyer who did not get the discount, even though the two may be quite different in their degree of vertical integration and therefore in the range of middleman functions that they performed, right? So the idea is, um, you know, you have two sets of buyers, different degrees of integration, different range of middleman functions, and therefore they're relieving the manufacturer of different costs, right? So to figure out whether different prices are really discrimination is, is going to be complicated. And, but because the FTC and the courts adopted a harsh standard on cost justification, something I talked about before, mm -hmm. the fact that it became very difficult to compensate buyers for performing middleman functions that they could perform more efficiently than if they relied on, on independent third parties. So let me just give you, I think, some concrete scenarios will, will help make this clear because it's a little bit abstract and a little tricky. Middleman function could include, for example, brokerage. So matching buyers with sellers. Yeah. A manufacturer wants a broker to find customers for the manufacturer. Or wholesale functions like buying in bulk, holding inventory, and delivering that inventory to the wholesaler's retail customers. Right? So brokerage, wholesale functions, etc. Consider some retailer some retailers may perform these functions themselves. Right? They may be vertically integrated into wholesale. The large chains would be an example. Some may not. They may rely on third parties for these wholesale functions, middleman functions. Now, let's look at these th the following scenarios. One, the middleman functions are performed entirely by the manufacturer, and the manufacturer sells directly to retailer A, call them retailer A. So the manufacturer basically does everything. Mm -hmm. The brokerage function, the wholesale, everything just serves the retailer. Scenario two, those same functions are performed by an independent middleman. There's some middleman broker and also wholesaler. The manufacturer sells the middleman who in turn sells to a different retailer B. Retailer B competes with A, mm -hmm. the one we discussed a second. Scenario three, those same middleman functions this time are performed by the retailer himself, call them retailer C, that's integrated backwards right, into brokerage and wholesale. Right. So these are three scenarios that vary in, in terms of who performs the middleman functions. In the first case, the manufacturer. In the second case, it's an independent. In the third case, it's the retailer himself. Okay. 
In case two, where the middleman functions are performed by an independent, the manufacturer is permitted to offer a discount to the middleman compared to the price that the manufacturer charges the retailer in the first scenario, where the manufacturer is himself performing the wholesale functions. And the reason is obvious. You know, in scenario two, the middleman is relieving the manufacturer of doing the, the middleman functions, and therefore the middleman should be entitled to a discount. Now, you would think the same thing would be true in case three, where the middleman functions are performed by the retailer. And they would be if the retailer can demonstrate, yes, here are the cost savings to the manufacturer from the fact that I am performing those functions. But as we mentioned, the FTC and the courts were wary that big buyers could just use as an excuse or a smokescreen that, oh, I'm performing important wholesale and brokerage functions that's saving the manufacturer costs, and that's why I'm getting a discount. So because that integrated re retailer is competing with a retailer that's not integrated, so in my nomenclature, retailer C is competing with A, the agency where FTC worries, oh, maybe big buyer, re big retailer C is just getting an artificial discount. The wholesale functions alleged that he's performing is just phony. So unless you can really cost justify this, we're just not going to let this happen. We're not going to let you get a discount. Okay, so it's a, a bit of a mouthful. But the examples of these, ineffi these inefficiencies create, I'm sorry, the ex inefficiency examples that this harsh treatment of the cost defense created. Let me give you a couple. Um, A&P, the big chain store, uh, they use its own field buyers to purchase. So the field buyers would approach manufacturers and buy it from them, as opposed to manufacturers having to hire independent brokers to find customers. So A&P's field buyers saved the manufacturers from costs, the cost they would have spent on brokers. Mm -hmm. And A&P used to share in those cost savings through discounts. So manufacturers would give A&P discounts saying, when I deal with you, I don't need to hire a broker. When I deal with a smaller buyer, I do need a broker. Okay. So you got an A&P got a discount. Once those discounts are prohibited on the theory that, well, maybe they're brokered payments or maybe just their discounts masquerading as brokered payments. So once they're prohibited, so case in 1949, A&P changed its buying practices dramatically. So it reduced inventory. It started buying in smaller quantities, started demanding immediate delivery and so on. In other words, instead of acting as its own broker and wholesaler, it said, all right, if I'm, I'm not going to get a discount for performing these functions, fine, let me delegate them to some third party that may well be some third party independent middleman that's presumably less efficient than I would have been. So that's an example. Mm -hmm. Another example has to do with so-called backhaul allowances. So these examples, you know, they're, they're all these quirky cases that it's hard to get your arms around until you actually dig in. Um, so these are small retailers often form co-ops that will do the wholesale, some wholesale functions for them. So um, many grocery chains, as well as cooperative wholesalers, smaller, sorry, back up a second. Many grocery chains, so A&P, but also cooperatives of small retailers that perform a wholesale function. Both of these entities have large private truck fleets that serve their affiliated stores. And 
so that these trucks will distribute from the wholesale operation to the retail, right? Now, these trucks, after delivering to the retail stores, will often, on their way back, pass by a manufacturer's warehouse. So it would make a lot of sense when those trucks are empty. Say, once you're passing by the manufacturer's warehouse, let's pick up man goods from the manufacturers and deliver them to the warehouse. Right? So that's so-called backhaul. Now, there's some extra costs involved in that, in taking the trucks and dropping them that extra distance to the manufacturer's location. And if the manufacturer was allowed to give a discount for this backhaul function, it would be win-win. Those trucks, instead of returning empty, would swing by the manufacturer's plant, pick up merchandise, and deliver to the warehouse. But again, the fear that all these discounts really may not reflect true wholesale functions. They may reflect just phony bargaining-based discounts. Um, de facto prohibited these kind of doing this kind of backhaul pickup. So they prohibited the manufacturing from, from compensating uh, both chains and retailer co-ops from picking up merchandise at the manufacturer's location and distributing it, delivering it to the wholesale uh, location. The Inefficiencies from having trucks come back empty were quite substantial. It was estimated that in the food industry alone, the if you could have the trucks uh, not return empty, but instead perform this pickup functions, that would have saved about, in today's dollars, about $1.8 billion just in the food industry alone. That, that's a scenario that's just convoluted, but ends up being important. Uh, and th there's other examples like that. Well, in, in these... In, in these cases, some like shifting certain functions to brokers who were almost certainly less efficient. That seems like one would be able to predict that since it's essentially what the law was calling for. The second example is takes a couple more steps of thinking and maybe people more legitimately think of that as an unintended consequence. But did courts um, ever consider the opposing effects of the law or did were they just, this is the law, and this is how we have to enforce it. Look, look I think in general, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm going way yeah, beyond yeah. my scope of expertise. But I think in general, the courts say, look, what's the law? And that's stick to the language of the law. I'm not the policymaker. I'm enforcing the law. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but there, but as to your point on uh, that, that the purpose was to shift to independent brokers, that's not obvious. So an example here is think of small retailers. They're forming a co-op. And they're from a cop to do their wholesale operations because they think that's more efficient than relying on, on some third party uh, wholesale. That, that's often the reason for the co-op. That's right. So, and the law was not intended to go after small retailers, right? It was intended to go after the A&Ps of this world and prevent them from getting artificial discounts. But the way it ended up being enforced is that a lot of the har the uh Enforcement was against retailer co-ops. That when retailer co-ops try to get discounts from the manufacturers for performing genuine wholesale functions, you know they fell into well. Can you cost justify these things? And if you can't do it to the penny, we're going to strike down the whole discount. So mm -hmm. an important perverse effect, even if you're trying to to protect small firms, is that some of the small firms that were using uh, uh, form co-ops, that type of arrangement got struck down, and paradoxically, that uh, could disadvantage those small retailers. Because when you look at chains, if a chain store is unhappy with the Robinson-Patman Act, 
they can say, you know what, we're just going to vertically integrate backwards into wholesale and perhaps into manufacturing. So if I'm doing my own manufacturing, you know, I can sell to myself the transfer price and there's no issue of discrimination. Right? The small retailers that form a co-op don't have nearly as good an option to integrate backwards into manufacturing. So they may not be able to get discounts for the wholesale functions they perform, whereas a, manif- a chain can get around this more easily. Uh, the bottom line is that the, some of the aspects of Robbins Batman may have put small retailers at a disadvantage compared to chains um, in the way I've just described, mm-hmm. which certainly wasn't the intent. Right. Um, I'm not saying that's a net effect. I'm just saying that's one effect that, that, that people have cited. In fact, famous economist Fred Shearer, one of the top industrial organization economists at the time, testified that that was an important shortcoming of Robinson Patman. Uh, it discouraged co-op formation by small retailers and shifted them towards using independent middlemen that may have been less efficient for them. Talk. Let's talk a little bit about the promotional activities. That's a, a yeah. interesting, so again, I don't know if it's unintended consequence or... But no, no, it's not unintended. Gets again into kind of the problem of writing down things and then without anticipating how they're going to evolve. So where's my promotional? Yeah, just one second here. So, and this will be quick. Remember, the, the law says the manufacturer only grant promotional assistance if it's granted to all buyers on, quote, proportionately equal terms. Now, when you have small buyers and, and big buyers and they have different type of retail operations, trying to figure out what proportionally equal terms means can be quite problematic. Mm-hmm. And so one approach the manufacturer end up doing is, you know what, we're just going to scale back all these promotional activities. It's just too hard. So a good example of this is the Elizabeth Arden case, mm-hmm. where Elizabeth Arden used to supply cosmetic demonstration services to depart- some department stores, big buyers, but not to mom and pop stores, right? And they sell maybe two or three tubes of nail polish a day. That's not worth <laughs> doing a demo for that. Right. So what does it mean to do these demonstration services on proportionally equal terms? If the mom and pop store is one-tenth the size of the department store in terms of volume, does that mean that we should uh, send the rep to the mom and pop store for one-tenth of the day? Or should we send the whole rep, one-tenth of the rep for the whole day? That's too gruesome to contemplate. Probably wouldn't do much for the brand either. <laughs> That's right. Or for the rep, Right. right. <laughs> so the point is, it sounds simple, but it's not. And the result was other examples where, you know, different types of outlets, small stores, big stores, demanded different ranges of merchandise. Some wanted only a few sets of pa- of offerings. Some wanted a fuller line. Well, if the law says you got to offer things on proportion equal terms, um, manufacturers, I'm not quite sure what it means. You know what? I'm going to scale back and move towards one size fits all. So. The net effect was to reduce the variety of offerings, even when that variety was in response to different demands by different types of retailers. Mm-hmm. Since we're we're kind of running out of time, talk a little bit about what Robinson and Patman meant to sort of the, for lack of a better word, business environment and you know certainties and uncertainties regarding the markets. Yeah. So the because of the difficulty of figuring out, you know, what's a lawful price difference, what's proportionally equal, and so on, 
at the end of the day, it ends up creating rigidity in prices, both across buyers and over time. You're worried if you change a price, oh, that may violate something. And there's a nice quote from Corwin Edwards, who's one of the experts in Robinson Patman, that says, there's a cons- there is a consensus, I'm quoting, among both buyers and sellers, that the result has been to diminish the flexibility of prices. But indeed, many of the persons interviewed viewed this as the chief virtue of the statute, which is not necessarily how economists would see it. Right. So in thinking about Robinson-Patman now, Robinson-Patman was more of a, let's err on the side of convicting the guilty. Uh, And we then moved more towards erring on the side of, of not catching some who are guilty. And we may be moving back in that direction, in the Robinson-Patman direction now. What are your thoughts on policy focusing on type one versus type two error? You know, I think it's pretty intractable. I think this is an example where seeing is believing, believing mm-hmm. is seeing. You know, if mm-hmm. you're predisposed to think intervention's good, you you go for type, you're more worried about type two errors. If you're mm-hmm. thinking intervention bad, you're more worried about type one. And I'm not sure that this is resolvable. My own take on this is I'm conflicted. As you mentioned, uh, I've served at the DOJ's antitrust division and the FCC. And so over, you know, I do have an enforcement aspect to me. I also went to UCLA, which is free market oriented, sometimes Mm -hmm. known as the University of Chicago at Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) So my overall take is I support enforcement, but I have respect for markets and and I recognize the pitfalls of trying to fine tune business behavior. Uh, My bias is we should focus on the welfare of consumers or more generally trading partners, including suppliers not of competitors, simply because if you focus too much on competitors' welfare, you really do risk chilling competition. And I think that's super high risk. That said, we may have had, from even from the point of view of consumer welfare, trading partner welfare, is there's a pretty good case to be made that we may have had under enforcement in certain areas like horizontal mergers, predatory pricing. But it's not obvious to me that there was a lot of under-enforcement against price discrimination, a la Robinson-Patman. So <laughs> that's, I think, where I come out on Robinson-Patman. Now, you know, if if you probably have only a couple more minutes, if you want to mm-hmm. say kind of what's the broad take on Robinson-Patman and broader lessons, I'm happy to conclude with that. Yeah, please do. I'll defer to you. No, no, please, please do that. So on the Robinson-Patman Act itself, it's, it's really kind of a, a, I think the title of my article, I didn't try to do a full analysis, to be fair. And I said on the article that this is not designed to look at the benefits, whatever they are. It's just designed to focus on unexpected perverse effects that probably are not isolated to Robinson-Patman. Mm-hmm. But but the there's a nice, um, it's clear that Robinson-Patman has produced numerous perverse results. And, and so even... Sympathetic commentators have said, quote, there's a real danger that an account of the case law under the Robinson-Patman Act will be met with frank unbelief. The Brit writing. (laughs) It's so crazy. It's hard to make this stuff up, right? But more broadly, I think the lesson is um, whenever you hear somebody invoking non-discrimination as a... tool for policy intervention, so whether it's big tech platforms, whether it's net neutrality and so on, this should raise red flags. 
because we're going to be in for a bumpy ride and the cure may be worse than the disease. That's kind of where my my big takeaway is from all this. I think that's a great place to to leave it. And I commend everybody to read this article, uh, which we will link to in the description of the podcast. Marius, thank you so much. I still believe it's the best paper that's been written on Robinson Patman. Um, maybe we can challenge someone to write to write a better one. I hope so. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Scott. Much appreciated.